This is the EM Cases EM Quick Hits Podcast, where our team of experts and educators bring you clear, concise, and condensed practice-changing knowledge on all those EM topics that you may not be totally comfortable with. Cases, the latest evidence, procedural tips and tricks, pitfalls to avoid, and the key take-home points and references on the EM Cases website. Quick, let's get on with it. First up, we've got Swami on Ludwig's angina, an approach, airway, and imaging issues. I recently had a fantastic case I wanted to share with you guys. The patient in question was a 63-year-old man with no past medical history, and he presented with sore throat and dental pain. When I looked at the computer, his vital signs looked pretty good, except for a fever of about 100.6. However, on entering the room, you could immediately tell the vital signs didn't tell much of the story. The patient wasn't tachypnic or terribly uncomfortable, but his face was quite swollen. Immediately, we could see it wasn't just the face that was swollen, but the upper neck as well. The patient's son was there and was able to tell us that his father had some dental pain about a week ago and had an appointment to see a dentist tomorrow, but over the last couple of days, the swelling got worse, and he thought that it was time to come in and see a doctor now because he was having a tough time eating. Our initial examination was pretty brief, but the keys were that externally we could see that the floor of the mouth was quite swollen. It was red and warm, and palpation showed that it was not only tender, but there was also subcutaneous air present. I asked the patient to open his mouth, but he really wasn't able to. He had significant trismus, and at most he had about one to two centimeters of mouth opening. The diagnosis isn't hard to make in this scenario. The patient clearly had Ludwig's angina, which is a rapidly progressive cellulitis of the submandibular space. The infection is often necrotizing, and that's where you get that subcutaneous air. Ludwig's is a true potential airway emergency and a challenging one to handle. As I'm looking at this patient, a number of things are running through my mind that we have to take care of now. Do I need to control this patient's airway? And if I do, how am I going to do it? What consultants do I need on board? What management do I need to start before the patient goes off to their next destination? And should I get diagnostic imaging to clinch the diagnosis? Let's take each of these one at a time, although in reality, you're going to be doing all of this at the same time. Airway in these patients can be extremely challenging anatomically. With all the swelling of the submandibular space and the trismus that often develops, you can't really get a good look in the mouth. The scary thing I've seen is some clinicians thinking that if they give a paralytic, the muscles will relax and the jaw will drop open. But this rarely happens. Instead, you've now got a paralyzed apneic patient and you can't get a laryngoscope in. The first thing is to see how urgently the patient needs the airway managed. Many of these patients can maintain their oxygenation and ventilation in a sitting upright position. If they can, leave them that way. Some will be in a bit more extremis. They might be tripoding to increase the size of their airway. Either way, you want to leave the patient in the position of most comfort for them. If the patient is maintaining their oxygenation and ventilation, you want to get them as quickly as you can to the OR. That is really the best move. Often, traditional laryngoscopy isn't going to be possible, and you'll need some kind of fiber optics and someone standing by to do a surgical airway. And truly, this is best done in the operating room with the entire surgical team, anesthesia, the surgeon who's going to be operating as well. But of course, we still need to have an airway plan because you might not be able to get the patient to the OR that quick or the patient's going to be decompensating. Again, relying on the mouth and traditional laryngoscopy for intubation is foolish. In our case, here's what I was thinking. My ideal option would be to have fiber optics. If I have a long fiber optic scope, I can place that through the nose and intubate over this. 
My patient wasn't terribly uncomfortable at the moment, so I could take some time to do a bit of topicalization of the nose and the airway before passing that scope through. Without fiber optics, this is going to be a bit more difficult. I'd still look to use the nose, but now I'd be doing that with a blind nasotracheal intubation. If I've got some time, again, I can topicalize the nose and the posterior pharynx. And then in a male patient, I'd be reaching for a six and a half size ET tube. And in a female patient, I'd probably grab a 6.0 ET tube. With either fiber optics or the blind approach, I would be using procedural sedation with ketamine to facilitate my placement, but not using a paralytic. If you have a good amount of experience with topicalizing, you can do a true awake, but I like to use ketamine to facilitate this process. Finally, I've got to have a surgical backup in place. I'm going to have to prep the neck for a crike and assess the neck because there's also the possibility that the infection has spread down the neck and I'm not going to be able to access the cricothyroid membrane. But hopefully, I do have that as a backup. If not, I'm going to again want some kind of a surgeon at the bedside if possible. Anyone who can do a trach is going to be extremely useful here. In the case where you don't have to manage the airway immediately, as in my case, we start looking at those other questions. As far as consultants, this is going to vary place to place. In my old hospital, this was always ENT, but where I work now, it's oral surgery. Whoever it is, get them on the phone early so they can mobilize the surgical team and get the patient to definitive care. If you've got to transfer the patient, get on the phone with your transfer hospital as soon as possible. The earlier the patient who is pseudo-stable is transferred, the less likely they're going to decompensate before they get to that surgeon. Of course, the consideration for a definitive airway is even more important if you're going to be transferring that patient. Aside from airway, what other management do we need to consider? It goes without saying that nothing should delay this person getting to the operating room. But if you've got some time, broad-spectrum antibiotics are important. Most of these infections are polymicrobial, and the standard recommendation is to give benzathine penicillin as well as metronidazole. Alternatively, you can use ampsalbactam. In penallergic patients, you can go with clindamycin instead. Most resources also recommend giving a big slug of dexamethasone, something around 10 milligrams, as that can reduce edema and cellulitis and improve penetration of the antibiotics. Additionally, a lot of resources recommend giving some nebulized epinephrine as it may temporarily reduce edema and keep the airway open. I haven't had much luck with this, but it's relatively harmless. Finally, what about consideration for imaging? Ludwig's is really a clinical diagnosis. Swelling of the submandibular space, a hot potato voice, which means that when the patient talks, it sounds like they've got a mouthful of hot food, trismus, and tongue displacement superior and anterior are going to give you the diagnosis. In patients with signs of airway compromise or impending airway compromise, don't waste your time on imaging. Just get the patient to the OR. If you have to transfer, definitely don't delay that transfer for imaging. However, in the patient who's relatively stable, your consultant may request additional imaging to guide their surgical exploration. This isn't unreasonable as CT can give a lot of useful information. The key is to make sure that the patient you have who doesn't have a definitive airway in place can actually tolerate the CT. If the patient can only sit upright or in a tripod, don't bother trying to go to CT. In our patient, our consultant did request a CT scan for further delineation, and we, in a controlled circumstance, sat the patient back slowly in the stretcher to see if they could tolerate lying flat. Fortunately, he could, so he went off to CT and then directly up to the operating room. Again, if the patient has any discomfort in lying flat, nix the CT and move on. There you have it. That's the emergency management consideration for Ludwig's angina, and here are the big points. 
Number one, these patients will have anatomically challenging airways. If you can, get the patient to the OR for definitive management and let the airway be controlled there with someone present who can do a trach if necessary. If you think you need to control the airway now, the nose is the way to go. Fiber optics through the nose after topicalization and perhaps ketamine is ideal, but a blind nasotracheal approach is a reasonable backup. Avoid paralytics if the patient is breathing spontaneously and be sure that you are ready to perform a surgical airway. Number two, get your surgeon on the phone immediately, whether it be ENT or oral surgery. You want to get them on the phone and mobilize them to the operating room. And finally, the diagnosis is clinical and doesn't require advanced imaging. Don't delay the patient going to the OR or getting transferred to the definitive care at another hospital for a CT scan. Remember that if the patient has trouble lying flat, they're not going to tolerate a CT scan. We'll drop some resources in the show notes, including a fantastic video from Jess Mason and MRAP HD on the topic. Excellent clinical pearls in that quick hit. Thanks so much, Swami. Next up is Anna McDonald on transient monocular vision loss, TMVL. Do you know the most important causes of TMVL to rule out besides TIA and ocular ischemia? And how to distinguish TIA from giant cell arteritis? Let's listen. Today, we're going to talk about transient monocular vision loss, otherwise known as, doctor, I couldn't see out of my right eye for a few minutes, but it's better now. Isn't that super easy to manage? I'll just do my ED stroke workup, maybe start them on an antiplatelet, and refer them to clinic for TIA follow-up. Job done. Or are there some other things we should be thinking about? Other possible causes we might need to identify? Most commonly, transient monocular vision loss is going to be due to a vascular cause. We can start with what most of us think of as classic amaurosis fugax, described as a curtain coming down or up over the field of vision in one eye. This is usually due to emboli, generally from the carotid artery, and can temporarily block the central retinal artery or one of the branch retinal arteries causing ischemia of the retina. Although we talk a lot about this curtain phenomenon coming down over the field of vision, only under 25% of patients actually describe this. Often the vision loss is more of a graying or a dimming of the vision. It's interesting to note that if they do describe this curtain, this is quite specific, and they are much more likely to have significant carotid disease. Also, the clearer the story of the sudden onset and specific duration of vision loss, the more likely this is to be true arterial ischemia. This transient vision loss due to emboli usually resolves in a few minutes and is basically a TIA of the eye, as we've all been taught. But there's also an entity that's more like the angina of the eye. This is called ocular ischemia and is usually due to carotid stenosis. Generally, ocular ischemia causes a more gradual onset vision loss and can actually be triggered by looking at bright lights. Venous occlusion obviously can also cause vision loss. We all know about central retinal vein occlusion or CRVO. But before the full-blown CRVO, there can be warning signs with episodes of temporary vision loss, usually described as a cloudiness over the field of vision, lasting for a few hours. So those are vascular causes of transient monocular vision loss that are non-inflammatory. But there's also inflammatory vascular causes of transient monocular vision loss. And here I'm talking about giant cell arteritis, otherwise known as temporal arteritis. We may generally think about GCA as causing a more long-standing visual deficit, but in the early stages, it can also cause transient vision loss. Usually these episodes are short-lived, like under five minutes, 
and they can be associated with other features of GCA, like headache and jaw claudication and all that good stuff. Migraines can also cause transient vision loss. Typically, we think of that classic visual aura, the flashing lights, the scintillating scotoma, but retinal migraine can also just cause the negative symptom of vision loss. By definition, the visual deficit should be followed by the migraine headache within 60 minutes. Now, optic neuritis generally will cause a more progressive and long-standing vision loss, but there is this thing called Uthoff's phenomenon, which can cause transient worsening of MS symptoms, often triggered by heat, for example, after a hot shower or exercise or fever. So if someone has optic neuritis, they can actually describe a transient vision loss due to this phenomenon. Certainly there's some globe and lid and orbital problems like glaucoma or some of the orbitopathies, dry eyes, hyphema, and other things like this that can cause patients to complain of transient difficulty seeing out of an eye. But these things are generally easily diagnosed or excluded on physical exam. So knowing these possible causes of transient vision loss, we can use our detailed history and good physical exam to guide us. Causes isolated to the globe or orbit can be excluded by examining the eye. Associated symptoms like headache or some of the precipitating factors could point towards migraine or optic neuritis as a cause. It's much more difficult to clinically differentiate between embolic causes and temporal arteritis, so have a low threshold to order the ESR and CRP on patients over 50 with transient vision loss, particularly, of course, if they have any of the other associated symptoms of GCA. If, after your assessment, you're worried about an ischemic cause, the key is going to be in your carotid imaging. Certainly, you should do your usual stroke workup, including the ECG, but the emboli that cause this kind of transient monocular vision loss generally are from the carotids, much less likely to be from the heart. In younger patients, particularly if there's any ipsilateral neck or head pain, but even in the absence of pain, think about carotid dissection and get a CTA in the ED. So to bring it all together, transient monocular vision loss has a wider differential than just retinal TIA from emboli. We should think about five possible etiologies. One, the non-inflammatory vascular causes, which are going to be your most common. This includes emboli, ocular ischemia, and impending CRVO. Number two, giant cell arteritis causing ischemia through an inflammatory process. Number three, retinal migraines. Number four, Uthoff's phenomenon in optic neuritis, and number five, localized global orbit problems such as glaucoma, dry eyes, and orbitopathies. And a couple of clinical pearls to finish. First, transient vision loss due to emboli is very difficult to differentiate clinically from GCA. Remember to have a low threshold to investigate for giant cell arteritis in the patient over 50 years old. And number two, Although many patients with vascular emboli as a cause of their vision loss will describe just a graying or dimming of their vision, remember that the description of a curtain over the visual field is very specific for arterial ischemia. Also, the clearer the description of the onset and specific duration of the vision loss, the more likely this is due to true arterial ischemia. Wow. I got to admit that the approach that Dr. McDonald mentioned at the top of her quick hit, you know, do an ED stroke workup, start an antiplatelet agent and send them out was pretty much my approach to TMVL until now. I'll for sure remember to think about giant cell arteritis and Uthoff's phenomenon next time I'm faced with a couldn't see out of my eye for a few minutes. 
Next up, we have EM Cases, Crit Cases, Blogs, Main Author, The Man, The Legend, The North York General Hospital, ER Doc, My Friend and Colleague, Dr. Mike Mish, on whether or not we should consider D-dimer in pregnant patients for workup of suspected PE. There's some new literature on this important question, so let's hear what Mike has to say. So you're at the end of your shift, but the department's in pretty rough shape, so you decide to see one more patient. There's a 27-year-old female in the low-risk chest pain area of your department. Her troponin's been drawn already, and it's negative. Her EKG shows a sinus rhythm with no ST changes. Her vitals are normal. You think this should be pretty straightforward, so you go and see the patient. Unfortunately, you very quickly realize that she's actually 18 weeks pregnant. Not so straightforward. So you ask yourself the obvious question, could this patient have a PE? Well, we know that PE is a leading cause of mortality in pregnancy, but it's actually quite rare, about one in a thousand. One PE for every thousand pregnancies. And while there's a small increase in the risk of PE in pregnancy, there is a disproportionately huge increase in our concern as ED providers about this diagnosis. Why is that? Well, think about it. Breathlessness, leg swelling, tachycardia, tachypnea. You can see all these in a PE, but they're also common changes you expect in pregnancy. But when a patient comes to our merge and endorses these symptoms, we're ER docs, we think worse first, so we have to consider the possibility of a PE. And when we do, we don't have our usual toolbox of PERC and WELLS to guide us. So with little guidance, we have to decide, are we all in or are we all out? Definitive imaging, yes or no, for this patient for PE. And as you might guess, we do tend to overimage these patients. So let's go back to this patient. She's otherwise well. She has no other risk factors for DVT or PE. The chest pains are going on for the last three days. It's a left side, it's an ache. It's not exertional, it's not pruritic. There's no homopsis. She does endorse breathlessness, but that's been going on for the last two weeks. Deep down, you think, this patient probably does not have a PE, but you really don't want to miss it. And you wonder about whether you can order a D-dimer to help rule it out. Well, the role of D-dimer in pregnancy has been controversial. We know that D-dimer increases throughout pregnancy, such that by the third trimester, about 95% of patients will have a positive D-dimer. Earlier studies, which were of poor methodology, raised some concern about the sensitivity of D-dimer in pregnancy. And for these reasons, D-dimer has received mixed reviews from guidelines, with some guidelines recommending against its use altogether. But recently, there's been two studies that have potential to change the way we think about D-dimer in pregnancy. The first one is by Virginia et al., 2018, it was the first study to prospectively evaluate the role of D-dimer as part of a diagnostic protocol for evaluation of PE in pregnancy. In this study, patients were first risk stratified using the revised Geneva score. Now, most of us are probably more familiar with the Wells score, but there's considerable overlap between the two of them, and they're both accepted ways to estimate pretest probability for PE in non-pregnant patients. Using this score, if the patients were low or intermediate risk, a D-dimer was drawn, and if it was negative, the patient was ruled out for the diagnosis of PE. In this study, the incidence of PE was 7%, and 
and there were zero missed PEs at three months follow-up using this algorithm. 25% of patients in the first trimester were ruled out for PE without the need for imaging. Unfortunately, as you might expect, essentially all the patients in the third trimester had a positive D-dimer and required imaging. So this study showed us that D-dimer can safely rule out PE in pregnancy, but it's really only useful in the first trimester. The next study is published in March 2019 by Vanderpoel et al. in the New England Journal of Medicine was the Artemis trial, which was essentially the YEARS protocol applied to pregnant patients. Now, you might recall the YEARS study from 2017, which was an attempt to use a more simplified clinical score to risk stratify patients. This YEARS score was based on the three items from Wells that were most predictive of PE. Signs of a DVT, the presence of homoptosis, and whether the ED provider felt that PE was the most likely diagnosis. And if the answer was no to all three of these questions, the patients were deemed years negative, and the D-dimer cutoff was increased to 1,000. This study had similar test characteristics compared to a lower intermediate wells combined with a D-dimer cutoff of 500, but significantly reduced the need for imaging by about 14%. Not bad. So the same protocol was applied now to pregnant patients in the Artemis trial. So about 500 pregnant patients were included in the study. If they were years negative, so no signs of DVT, no homopsis, and the ED provider did not think PE was the most likely diagnosis, a D-dimer cutoff of 1,000 was used. The incidence of PE was 4%. About half patients were years negative, and a D-dimer cutoff of 1,000 was used. In this study, there were no missed PEs at three months. Impressively, 39% of pregnant patients were ruled out for PE without the need for performing imaging. This included 30% of patients in the third trimester. Now recall that about 95% of these patients would require imaging using the standard cutoff of 500. So that's pretty impressive. What are our take-home points? Well, pregnancy is a risk factor for PE, but not all pregnant patients are high risk for PE. If we image every pregnant patient of whom we have any suspicion of a pulmonary embolism, we can expect that about 95% of these scans will be negative. That's a lot of radiation. Imaging all these patients protects us as providers, but it's probably not the best thing for our patients. So the next time you see a pregnant patient in whom you have some suspicion of a PE, but your suspicion is not high, get out your smartphone, calculate the revised Indiva score, figure out whether their year is negative, and know that D-dimer definitely has a role in working out these patients for PE. As always, anytime there's evolving evidence, I encourage you to have a conversation with the patient involving their values and preferences and involve them in shared decision-making. At the same time, bring these papers back to your department, have a discussion with your group, and get together and decide how your department's going to investigate PE in pregnant patients. So there's your answer. Yes to D-dimer in pregnancy, as long as you're careful to use it with the Geneva score in the right patient. Now, that one required a lot of brain power to figure out. But next up is our pediatric no-nonsense expert, Dr. Nat May, giving us some simple tips and tricks when it comes to managing nasal foreign bodies in kids. Once kids get up and walking, they're inherently curious. And one of the key characteristics of that unpredictable beast known as a toddler is the tendency to experiment with sticking foreign bodies up their noses. 
This can be literally anything a child can get their hands on, but food and small toys are particularly common. And for some reason, it's often a small, smooth, rounded object that the child has managed to get stuck. Kids usually confess that they've done this relatively soon afterwards, and that's usually what brings them to the emergency department. But I'll talk a little bit more about chronic foreign bodies at the end. Examination usually reveals the foreign body relatively obviously. There's a bit more space in the nasopharynx than we can easily appreciate, so kids can often get surprisingly big foreign bodies up there, but they're usually easily visible in a calm child using just the light from an otoscope or head torch without a nasal speculum. Keeping that child calm throughout is key to approaching them. We do want to avoid distressing the child into taking big gulping breaths, as there's a small risk that rapid inhalation through the nose could displace the foreign body into the airway, at which point you've got a far bigger problem to deal with. It's worth knowing that the average five-year-old can coordinate their breathing on demand. For example, they'll take a deep breath and request when you're auscultating their chest. The age at which kids will be able to do this is variable. I usually try during chest exam from about age three, demonstrating a big breath through open mouth and asking them to do the same. But most five-year-olds can coordinate a big breath through the mouth and out through the nose. Why is this relevant? Well, because if the child can coordinate their breathing and you can occlude the nostril without the foreign body in and have tissue ready, the child may be able to simply blow the foreign body out. So for kids age five and above, it's definitely worth a try. Even if the parents tell you they've tried it at home, it's definitely been successful for me more than once. For younger kids and those who can't seem to coordinate well, there are alternatives. The most famous is the parent's kiss, which requires a bit of careful briefing. The parent or carer will take on the role of blowing the foreign body out of the child's nose by entirely covering the child's mouth with their own mouth and giving a continuous breath. Medium length, medium force, I usually describe it as trying to blow out birthday cake candles that are a little bit further away than usual. The child is best situated lying on the examination bed and you'll usually only get one good shot at this before the child gets a bit too distressed and further attempts become untenable. While the parent's blowing, your job is to stand at the head end, again, occluding that non-foreign body nostril, and with the tissue ready to catch it in case it shoots part way out before it can be sniffed back in. The technique works because the child will reflexively close their glottis, so the parent's exhalation is redirected out through the affected nostril. An alternative to using the parent is to use a bag valve mask, arguably more hygienic, but also a bit scarier for the child. I've had good success with both techniques, including the expulsion of a surprisingly large kidney bean. If the foreign body isn't removed using this technique, it's tempting to try instrumentation or suction, but this can be very distressing for the child and technically difficult with the risk of dislodgement into the airway, especially for soft and round foreign bodies and for inexperienced operators. For flat and incompletely occlusive foreign bodies that you can't blow out, you might be able to pass a lubricated small, so size five to eight, Foley catheter beyond the foreign body before inflating the balloon and gently pulling back on the catheter to bring the foreign body out with it. Otherwise, ketamine or other procedural sedation for instrument-based removal of the foreign body is usually required. And that might be suitable if there's a corner or a part you think you can grab with forceps or to facilitate suction. But this is obviously riskier. I've seen higher failure rates when we've needed to proceed to sedation-facilitated removal, so think carefully. It's not uncommon for those edged foreign bodies to get wedged between or behind the turbinates, especially if they've become inflamed. And don't forget that paediatric nasal mucosa is vascular and friable, and instrumentation can easily cause bleeding. Again, a bigger problem than the one you started with. 
referral to inpatient ENT or otorhinolaryngology, depending on your geography, services for removal in theatre might be preferable and safer. Finally, a note of caution on chronic foreign bodies. Kids may not confess to having stuck something up their nose and may present days or weeks later with chronic and unpleasant unilateral nasal discharge. The confession may or may not then be forthcoming, but it's always worth encouraging gentle blowing or gently suctioning discharge from the nares, if possible, to see if you can see a foreign body and referring to ENT for examination under anaesthesia if you can't. The parent's kiss method is often unsuccessful in this group as they effectively get a mouthful of some pretty stinky nasal discharge. And I personally still feel very guilty for the parent who vomited after attempting to blow out a two-week stuck piece of chicken. So kindness and referral is probably a better plan in these patients. There are lots of other techniques available in a couple of articles that I've included in the references, but as you usually only get one or two attempts at a compliant child, like so many things in emergency medicine, make your first attempt the best one. Good luck. Next up, we've got the second quick hit in our series on drug interactions from our special guest, Dr. David Yearlink, the head of toxicology at the University of Toronto. And this one is on sulfamethoxazole trimethoprim, otherwise known as Bactrim in the States and Septra in Canada. This guy's brilliant. Listen up. All right, so imagine you're in the ED and it's like one in the afternoon and you are called to the bedside of a 80-year-old woman who's morbidly ill. And all you know is that she was brought to the hospital feeling weak and that she's got a history of some CKD and diabetes. And you are shown an ECG that shows fairly typical changes of hyperkalemia. And you shift her and you give her some calcium and she ends up doing okay. Many of us have looked after patients just like this over the years. And it's sometimes the case that that is the result of a well-intentioned prescription for SEPTA or Bactrim, depending on where you practice. What's this all about? You, you might be on the receiving end of this patient, or you might be the doc who triggered that interaction. And it's not an exaggeration to say that you can kill people w- with hyperkalemia on the basis of adding SEPTRA. So why does this happen? It happens because, you know, SEPTRA's two drugs. There's sulfamethoxazole and trimethoprim. And it's, this, is, this issue here is about the trimethoprim component. Trimethoprim in the distal nephron is a potassium-sparing diuretic. It blocks a transporter called the ENAC channel. And that channel um, normally is responsible for, you know, getting potassium into the urine. So when you block it with trimethoprim, you end up accumulating potassium. And in most people, it's not a big deal. But if the person has other drug or disease-related reasons to be hyperkalemic, you can get into trouble very quickly. So, you know, what drugs would you have to worry about? If you're going to put somebody in SEPTRA, you know, what, what drugs would you want to be especially wary about. And I would say that the main drugs there are going to be ACE inhibitors, angiotensin receptor blockers, and spironolactone. Those would be sort of the three big ones. And we've looked at this. We, you know, we've actually shown that if you've got an older person who's on an ACE or an ARB and you put them on SEPTRA, that person's relative risk of being hospitalized for hyperkalemia in the next few weeks is about sevenfold higher than if they'd been on, say, amoxicillin. And if the person's on spironolactone, the relative risk is about 12-fold higher. And in fact, even in that subset of patients, there's an increased risk of sudden cardiac death as an outpatient, which I think might be hyperkalemic. So, um, And there will be some other 
factors that you know aren't drug related um, that might put that person at especially high risk. So if they've got diabetes or if they've got CKD, those are going to be independent risk factors for developing hyperkalemia. So you, the, the poster child here of you know the kind of person who's going to get into real trouble or maybe even die from hyperkalemia from the the septa prescription would be someone who's got a you know a GFR of fifty and they've got diabetes, and they're on an ACE inhibitor, that person is a sitting duck for hyperkalemia from SEPTRA. That's probably the commonest, really dangerous interaction that you get in trouble with with SEPTRA. There are maybe two other ones to mention. The less common one is going to be involving methotrexate. So we don't see a lot of patients on MTX, but you will sometimes have someone come in and adding SEPTRA to methotrexate not prophylactically, but therapeutic doses of septra can easily add to lead to a sort of an additional antifolate effect. And so, you know, after a week or so of therapy, they're they're back in hospital and their counts are low and they've got mucositis and they need folinic acid and so on. That's I think something to be wary of. The the, the third category of interactions with septra here is going to involve septra's ability to turn off the liver's metabolism of other, of other drugs. And uh, the, the, the key drugs here would be warfarin and sulfonylureas. Both of those drugs are metabolized by an enzyme called CYP2C9. Scepter turns that off. And so you, you're, you can sort of infer that if someone's on five milligrams of warfarin a day and you know their INR is two and a half and you put them on septra, um, don't be surprised if five or seven days later their INR is five or six or seven because of the the predictable inhibition of metabolism that septra is going to affect. Same is true of uh, sulfonylureas. So the risk here obviously is going to be hypoglycemia and that's you know, going to be dependent on a variety of factors. But we've shown that, you know, if you've got someone on a sulfonylurea and you add SEPTRA, the relative risk of being hospitalized for hypoglycemia in the next couple of weeks is about five or six-fold higher than if you'd given them amoxicillin. You know, we talk about interactions and they're, you know, they're all kind of nebulous and they, it's like something you read about in textbooks, but they really do happen to people. And it's the best way to avoid them is just to be aware of them. And I say these are the three big interactions that I'd hang my hat on when it comes to SEPTRA. We'll have all the references for these sulfamethoxazole trimethoprim drug interactions in the show notes. But suffice to say, in general, especially in older patients with comorbidities, it's probably best to avoid Bactrim or SEPTRA whenever possible. The list of drugs to remember are the ones that cause hyper-K, ACEs, ARBs, spironolactone, and also methotrexate, warfarin, and sulfonylureas. Last but certainly not least on this EM Cases Quick Hits, my friend and EBM guru, Justin Morgenstern, on airway options in cardiac arrest. Chest compressions are ongoing. The defibrillator is attached. The first rhythm check showed PEA. Epinephrine has already been given, although after listening to an episode of EM Case's Journal Jam, you wonder whether that was actually a good idea. The only thing left to do is to get this patient intubated. Wait, intubated? Bag valve mask? LMA? King tube? How exactly are we supposed to manage the airway in cardiac arrest? There were three big RCTs that came out in 2018 that inform our practice and that we should probably know about. 
The Airways 2 trial was Banger JAMA 2018. It's a multi-center cluster randomized trial of adult patients with non-traumatic out-of-hospital cardiac arrest in England. It was actually the paramedics who were randomized here. So some of the paramedics intubated and some of the paramedics used a second generation LMA as their first option, but paramedic discretion was allowed. There were 9,200 patients in this trial and there was no difference in the primary outcome of neurologically intact survival. Now, this is a pragmatic trial. So there are a bunch of nuances in this data. If you really want to get into the weeds, there's a full write-up on first 10 EM. But one detail that's worth knowing, LMAs are easier. Only 62% of the intubation group actually ended up intubated, whereas 82% of the LMA group got an LMA. So if you're trying to pick a one-size-fits-all option, the LMA might have an advantage. The second paper is also in JAMA 2018, and the lead author is Jabra. This is a multi-center, randomized, non-inferiority trial in Belgium and France comparing bag valve mask to intubation in 2,000 adults without a hospital cardiac arrest. Again, the details are on my website, but for the primary outcome of neurologically intact survival at 28 days, there was no difference. 4.3 versus 4.2%. Now, because of the way that non-inferiority trials work, they can't conclude that BVM is non-inferior to intubation. But I actually think that they have it backwards, because I would say that BVM is the standard care, in which case this same data could be used to say that intubation is not non-inferior to BVM. Forget all those confusing stats. The numbers are exactly the same. BVM and intubation were the same. I think the important detail to pull out of this study is that there was more airway management difficulty in the BVM group, which makes sense. BVM is a difficult skill, but in the end, it didn't actually affect patient-oriented outcomes. The third paper is the PART trial, also in JAMA 2018, and the first author is Wang. This is another multi-center, cluster-randomized trials of adult patients in non-traumatic cardiac arrest. This time, comparing an initial plan of intubation with an initial plan of a laryngeal airway, the King-LT. They had 3,000 patients in this trial, and for the primary outcome of survival at 72 hours, the laryngeal tube was better, 18% versus 15%. Now, 72-hour survival isn't an ideal outcome, but the laryngeal tube was also better in ROSC and in-hospital survival and neurologic status at discharge. So that's the three trials. They all have significant limitations. The biggest problem is probably crossover. In all the trials, patients ended up getting the opposite treatment. And in all the trials, clinicians could use judgment. So we shouldn't use these trials to eliminate intubation in an EMS setting, because it might take away a really important option that was still present in these trials. And we shouldn't be too dogmatic about taking only one approach. But there's a lot that we can learn from these studies. When a patient's heart is stopped, a piece of plastic in the airway is not going to restart it. Having a patent airway and probably delivering a few low-volume breaths is important, but I think these trials tell us that it doesn't matter which technique you use to get that done. Personally, I interpret these trials as demonstrating that a laryngeal airway, an LMA, is going to be the best tool for most of my patients in the setting that I work. The LMA is easier, it's quicker, and it's less technically challenging. So it is my go-to in cardiac arrest. 
but I'm always ready to transition to a different technique if I cannot be sure that I'm delivering oxygen to the lungs. And to me, that is the key. You have to have a technique to confirm a patent airway, and that is quantitative waveform and tidal CO2. Which is related to another little caveat in these trials that's worth discussing. These were all adult patients. Pediatric cardiac arrests are different with a higher rate of airway and respiratory causes. And as a result, most people will want to exclude pediatrics from this discussion. Many will suggest that all children should be intubated in an emergency department arrest setting. I don't think that's the right way to think about it. A piece of plastic in the airway isn't what saves these children. It's the patent airway, and it's the oxygen moving into the lungs. And I make sure that I have a patent airway on every single cardiac arrest patient, adult or child. I don't do that by intubating. I do that by using waveform capnography. So whether I'm using a BVM or an LMA or an endotracheal tube, I know that every breath I give is going into the lungs. And if that's the case, I don't need to have an endotracheal tube. And because the LMA is easier, and there are more important things for me to be doing during an arrest, the LMA is my first option. And I use the same strategy for both adults and children. Now, I'm sure there are going to be some strong opinions about this topic out there. Let us know what you think. All right, that was six quick hits with six key take-home points. First, Airway-threatening Ludwig's is a clinical diagnosis, not a radiological one, and your goal is to safely get the sick ones to the OR ASAP. Next, transient monocular vision loss is not just about TIA. Widen your differential and think especially about giant cell arteritis. D-dimer for pregnancy. D-dimer does have a role in working up PE in pregnancy using the Geneva score and the years rule. Fourth, For pediatric nasal foreign bodies, first line over five years of age is to get the kid to blow it out themselves by occluding the contralateral nair. In younger kids, try the parent kiss or try it with a BVM. A Foley is another option. If a couple of these methods are failing, it's probably best to consult ENT rather than sedating and attempting removal with forceps. Next, whenever possible, try and avoid sulfamethoxazole trimethoprim. That's Bactrim Receptra because there's a long list of potentially life-threatening drug interactions. And finally, consider LMA first line for cardiac arrest patients. In other news, the EM Cases Quiz Vault will finally be live on the EM Cases website on June 18th. Please do give us your feedback so that we can make it the best possible test-enhanced learning that we can. Just email me directly at anton at emergencymedicinecases.com. And I hope to see some of you at the EM Cases course on June 24th and podcast camp in September in Toronto. Take it easy. Music